If you would, please, would you turn again to John 9.35, and that's on page 12.35 in the Pew Bible. John 9.35. Some of you will remember Julius Buckley, who with his wife Lily were members here for many years. Julius is now with the Lord and in his heavenly home. Julius was a man who was small in stature, but he had a big presence. He had a deep voice, and with his Jamaican accent, it was a blessing to hear him pray. As a result of his diabetes, Julius slowly lost his sight. Eventually, he became completely blind. And when he did, he would not leave his house. The prospect of going out was too frightening for him. I would go to see him at his house after church, especially when I brought him communion on those communion Sundays. I recall one visit in particular. When I walked into his house and I greeted them, uh, Lily and Julius, Julius recognized my voice, and he said in his Jamaican accent, Pastor, it is good to see you. Of course, he said those words out of habit, and when he realized that he couldn't see me, he began to weep. He couldn't see anything. All he saw was darkness. I tried my best to comfort him, although I knew that whatever I might say would be inadequate. I had no way of really experiencing the darkness the blindness that he uh, had. But I did ask him to uh, hold on to one truth, that his blindness was temporary. In fact, I said, everything that we know is temporary because this world is not our home. And these bodies that we are occupying now, they too are only temporary. I said to him, Julius, because Jesus is your Lord and Savior, there is a day coming when you will see again. When you enter Christ's eternal kingdom, you will see again, and you will see your Lord face to face. Julius wept again, but this time I think he wept joy, tears of joy. And he said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We return once again to the story of the man born blind. And as we do, let's consider for a moment the roller coaster of emotions that this man was made to experience in a very short period of time. On this particular morning, he did as he had done many years in his life. He was led from his house to his usual location, very likely just outside one of the entrances to the temple. And there he sat by the roadside and begged. For the most part, he was treated by passers-by as an outcast, a result of his blindness. In first century Israel, 
it was thought that blindness was the result of sin. So he's treated as an outcast. And because we know he, it was thought that his blindness was a result of sin, because we heard the disciples make that comment when they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? As people walked by the blind man, some gave him coins. Was it because they felt pity for him? Perhaps. But more likely, they thought giving him money would earn for themselves credit with God as they demonstrated their own supposed goodness. While the man accepted the money and needed to do so in order to eat, every coin he received was a reminder that he was an outcast. But then, something miraculous happened. A man stopped before him, a man called Jesus. And the man put mud on his eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he did as he was told. And when he did that, everything changed. He came home seeing. For the first time, he could see things that he never could even imagine. For the first time, he could see colors, blue and yellow flowers. For the first time, he could see the golden gate of the temple. Everything was spectacular. Imagine his elation, being able to see for the first time in his life. He had to be thinking how different his life would be now. How he could live now like other people. No longer would he be shunned by other people because he was a seeing man now. As he ran home, he likely thought his neighbors would celebrate with him, accept him back into society. But that was not the case, was it? He was instead treated with suspicion. Many thought he was not the same man, that he only looked like the man who was born blind, despite the fact he insisted, I am that man. Well, his neighbors performed a kind of citizen's arrest and dragged him before the Pharisees to appear before them. The Pharisees then interrogated this man and they verbally abused him. They were furious that the man was giving credit to Jesus and they pressured him to disavow Jesus. The Pharisees condemned Jesus as a sinner. Why? Because he healed on the Sabbath. The man then delivered that famous line, a line which in a sense represents the experience of every believer. The man said, there is one thing that I know. I once was blind, but now I see. The man would not back down. He continued to stand up for the truth. And because he would not back down, the Pharisees delivered their judgment against the man. In John chapter 9, verse 34, the last verse of the passage we considered last week, the Pharisees were determined to put this man in his place. They said to him, you were completely born into sins and you are teaching us? And because he would not retract his story, 
but instead stood up for the truth, John reports, they cast him out. That brings us to verse 35 as we pick up where we left off. Let's go, please, to John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Some may have Son of Man. We concluded from the previous passage that the man was not only cast out of the courtroom, he was also cast out of the synagogue. The very thing that his parents feared was precisely the penalty he would be forced to suffer. To be put out of the synagogue is what we might refer to as excommunication. And it was a devastating penalty that was being levied against this man. To be put out of the synagogue meant that even though he could now see, he would still be an outcast among his people. In fact, a complete outcast. If he thought that being treated as an outcast because of his blindness was bad, this was exponentially worse. Being put out of the synagogue would not only make him an outcast religiously, meaning he would be unable to, to worship in the temple or the synagogue, he would also be shunned by his neighbors outside of the synagogue, shunned socially, shunned financially. Sure, he could now see, but how could he make a living? How could he secure a job without the social and the financial connections of synagogue life? He couldn't. Moments ago, he was experiencing the greatest day of his life. But now it seemed that instead, his future would hold only loneliness and ruin. But if that is what he was thinking, that experience would only be temporary. What we discover in the first verse of today's passage is that Jesus not only heard about the man's trouble, but that Jesus also found him. Jesus heard that they cast him out and he found him. That word found assumes that Jesus first had to seek him, right? In order to be found, you first need to be sought. It reminds us that Jesus came to what? Seek and save the lost. And as Jesus seeks this man, it is for the purpose of salvation. This man's future will not be characterized by loneliness or by ruin, he will have a life of Christian fellowship and eternal blessing. Let's also observe that as Jesus seeks out this man, it is a reminder to us that when we face persecution, Jesus will never leave us alone. Instead, Jesus comes to us and he is there. Consider this. 
Earlier in this account, when this man was facing persecution by the Pharisees, he was abandoned by his own parents. His parents distanced themselves from him. We said they threw him under the bus because they didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. They feared being put out, and so they distanced themselves from their son, but not Jesus. When we face persecution, Jesus does not leave us to face it alone. He comes to us, and he is there. Our God promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In addition, as we read in verse 35 that Jesus heard they had cast him out and then found him, we are also reminded of the truth that it is God who takes the initiative. It was Jesus who took the initiative in healing this man. It was Jesus who took the initiative in finding this man. Consider this. The man didn't, in this case, the man didn't ask to be healed. Instead, Jesus went to this man and healed him. And Jesus explained to his disciples why this man was born blind and, more importantly, why this man would be healed. So that the works, plural, so that the works would, the works of God would be revealed in him. Obviously, one of those works was giving this man his physical sight, but by far the more important work was giving this man his spiritual sight. That is the sight which would enable him to recognize Jesus as the Christ. This spiritual sight must be enabled by a divine work, a work of God. It is God who must take the initiative. As Jesus said earlier in this gospel, in John chapter 6, Jesus said of himself, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It is a work of God. While scripture is clear that salvation is a work of God, it is also true that we must respond to the invitation of Christ to believe in him. And that is precisely what we see here. If we look at the remainder of this verse, we see that after Jesus heard that the man had been cast out and then found him, Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? The first thing we need to do is to address that depending on which translation we are using, we may see a difference here in the text. Some have son of God, some may have son of man. Here's the explanation. The New King James, which we're using here in the pew, the New King James follows the original King James, which was translated in the early 1600s. And the original King James and the New King James have Jesus asking, do you believe in the Son of God? But in the New King James, if you look carefully, there's a footnote 
that brings our attention down to the, to the bottom, and uh, there is an alternative reading. And the alternative reading is, Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that is the reading that is offered by most modern translations. Here's why. Following the publication of the original King James in the early 1600s, other more ancient manuscripts were translated, and these older manuscripts point to the Son of Man reading. Since the more ancient manuscripts have Son of Man, it is the translation that is favored by most scholars. It is thought to be the original to John, the Apostle John. In favor of this view is that while Jesus did use both titles, the title that he used most often when referring to himself is the Son of Man. As we know, both titles are important because they demonstrate the dual nature of Christ, that he is both fully God and fully man. The Son of Man title points to his humanity. The Son of God title points to his divinity. But even as I say that, this distinction is not as hard and fast as this usual explanation might suggest. That is because the term son of man also points to Christ's divinity. The term or title son of man originates from the book of Daniel. We heard it this morning as the call to worship. In chapter 7 of that book, Daniel gives a prophecy it is a prophecy that speaks of the Messiah's coming and his eternal and everlasting kingdom. And what is significant is that Daniel, listen, identifies this divine deliverer as the Son of Man. But whichever reading or title we accept, Son of Man or Son of God, Jesus' question remains the same. What Jesus is asking, essentially, is this. He's asking the formerly blind man this. Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the Messiah? Remember, both titles point to the Messiah. Do you believe in the Messiah? As Jesus asks this question... Let's bear in mind two things. These are important. First, at this point, the man has no knowledge of what the person who healed him looks like. The reason for that is obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. The man was completely blind when he parted ways with his healer. He doesn't know what his healer looks like. When the man reported the incident to his neighbors, he said at verse 11, a man called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes. He said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I did, and I came home seeing. So he knows his healer's name, but he doesn't know what his healer looks like. The second thing we should bear in mind was the testimony that the man gave to the Pharisees. 
and it concerned the unprecedented nature of what was done for him. At verse 32, the man said to the Pharisees, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing like this. During the hearing, it became evident, as this man stood up against the Pharisees, that he was familiar with Scripture. And since that is the case, he would have known from the prophecies of Isaiah 35 and 42 that foretold that a clear evidence of the Messiah's coming was his ability to give sight to the blind. Therefore, when the man did as his healer said, and he came home seeing, it had to occur to him that the man who healed him, who gave him his sight, must be the Messiah. Let's go please to verse 36. Because now the formerly blind man is asked a question by someone who has not yet identified himself, and we will understand that question from the person who's talking to the formerly blind man, do you believe in the Messiah? And so at verse 36, he answers and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? The first thing we will need to notice here is how the formerly blind man addresses his questioner. The King James has him addressing his questioner as Lord. Who is he? Lord. Whereas some other translations have the word Sir. Who is he? Sir. Now both are correct. And this is because the Greek word that is here, courier, can mean both Sir and Lord. And so what we need to do is decide which better fits the context. Or said another way, what best fits the context according to what is occurring at this precise moment? In our English language, the word sir, that's an address of respect. It's a title of respect. But we reserve the word Lord as a divine title. Only God is referred to as Lord. Therefore, I will suggest that in this situation, at this precise moment, it is better to conclude that the man is addressing his questioner as sir. And the reason being, since this man, the formerly blind man, does not yet know the identity of the person speaking to him, it seems better to understand his address as the lesser of the two options. In other words, who is he, sir? Who is this Messiah that I may believe in him? Let's also notice something about this man's attitude. He is ready to believe. Did you notice that? He wants to know who the Messiah is, and presumably he wants to know where he is. Why? Because as he says, so I may believe in him. You see, he's ready to believe. We were told at the beginning of this account that the works, the works of God would be revealed in him. And that is exactly what we're seeing here. 
His heart has been softened. His heart has been divinely prepared to believe. He wants to believe. And the reason he wants to believe is because God has done great things for him. His eyes have been opened, not only physically, his eyes have been opened spiritually. His heart is ready to recognize the Messiah and believe. So he eagerly wants to know, who is he, Lord? Who is he, sir, that I may believe? At verse 37, Jesus answers his question while answering the desire of his heart. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Jesus confirms that he is the Messiah. And as he does, there are two elements to his reply. Jesus says you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Let's have a start by having a closer look at the first element. And what I'd like to point out is that there is a unexpected verb tense in the first element. Very strange. Jesus says, you have seen him. Some other translations, such as the NIV, render it differently. But I'd like to tell you that these other translations miss the mark. The NIV has, you have now seen him. That will cause the reader to think that the emphasis is on what is occurring now. But that is not the case. I'll explain, but I'll need to get a little bit wonky. But in the end, I think you will agree that what is going on here is some powerful stuff. I mean, powerful. In the Greek text, the verb seen is in the perfect tense. Greek verb tenses are more nuanced than our English verb tenses. In English, we have past, present, and future. Well, let's talk, we're talking about one Greek verb tense, and it is the perfect tense. Let me read for you the definition of the Greek perfect tense, the one that's being used for this verb. Here's the definition. The perfect tense describes a completed action that occurred in the past, but which produces a state of being that exists in the present. Let me repeat that. The perfect tense describes a completed action that occurred in the past, but which produces a state of being that exists in the present. And so here's the effect of the verb tense as Jesus gives his response. What he is saying to the man is this. Because you saw me in the past, you are able to see me now. Because you saw me in the past, you are able to see me now. Now, that's some heavy stuff. Why? Because we will remember that at their last meeting, the man was completely blind. So how could it be that seeing him in the past, seeing Jesus in the past, has allowed him to see you now? Well, he couldn't see Jesus in the past, not with his eyes. But he could see him with his heart. 
He could see him spiritually. Therefore, many commentators believe the point that Jesus is making here is that as a result of their last meeting, Jesus not only gave the man eyes to see physically, but it did a work in his heart that allowed him to see Jesus spiritually. And that spiritual sight that was enabled at their last meeting now enables the man to recognize Jesus now. That is, recognize him as the Messiah, the Christ of God, and recognize him with his heart. If we focus now on the second element, it is here that Jesus makes it explicitly clear that he, Jesus, is both the man who healed him and is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. After the man asks, who is he? Who is the Messiah? Jesus answered, it is he who is talking to you. It is he who is talking to you. Now, there's a strange thing going on here, too. Notice that when Jesus speaks of himself, he doesn't speak in the first person. He speaks in the third person. Jesus doesn't say, it is I, the first person. He speaks in the third person. It is he who is talking to you. The commentator, Edward Klink, writes that the third person suggests that Jesus is to be known beyond his physical presence. Jesus is to be known far beyond the experience of those who have the privilege of seeing him with their physical eyes. In chapter 20 of John's Gospel, we will hear Jesus say to the Apostle Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. In that verse, Jesus is speaking about you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen me with their physical eyes and yet with the eyes of our heart, our spiritual vision, we have seen him and we have believed. Let's go please to verse 38 as the man now responds. And without question, this is the mountaintop summit of this man's spiritual journey. At verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now that Jesus has identified himself, the man knows that he is again in the company of the man who opened his eyes. He also knows he's in the presence of the Messiah and therefore, with all his heart, a heart filled with gratitude and a heart filled with awe of the power of, this, of the one who is with him now, he declares, Lord, I believe. Once again, the man addresses him as courier. Remember, that word means both sir and Lord. Which do we think he's referring to now? Lord. Before, he addressed him as courier, and we think it meant sir. But now it clearly takes on the full force, the elevated meaning of Lord. Only if this man recognized Jesus as Lord and recognized him in the fullness of that term would he worship him. And that is precisely what the man does. He worships him. As the man declares, Lord, I believe, 
Let's take a moment to consider this progressive, upward, stair-stepping spiritual journey that this man has taken. When the man was first healed and he was questioned by his neighbors, how did he refer to Jesus as a man? He said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. But here's an important principle. As the man was repeatedly challenged, first by the neighbors, then by the Pharisees, he continued to see the identity of his healer with increasing clarity. It seems that which, with each hardship the man faced, it brought his spiritual vision into sharper focus. When he was brought before the Pharisees, he again, he again identified his healer, but at this point, he identified his healer by saying, he's a prophet. He's a man. He's a prophet. After his Pharisees testified, I'm sorry, after his parents testified, and they distanced themselves from their son, the Pharisees dragged the, the formerly blind man before them again, and his understanding and his testimony grew, and it grew even clearer. Not only is this Jesus, he said, a prophet, meaning it's someone who speaks for God, at this point, he said, this Jesus is from God. Now, as the man is again in the presence of Jesus, he senses that he is not only from God, but that he is in the presence of God. Because he said, I believe, and he worships. Lord, I believe, and with that he worships. Did the man fall to his knees and worship? Perhaps. But we don't know. But what is more important than the position of the body? is the position of our hearts. Just as his eyes were opened, so has his heart been opened. This is not merely an intellectual assent. He doesn't merely say, I believe, he worships. And when we speak of worship, we're not talking about singing a song or swaying to the music or clapping our hands. I mean, those are fine things. Those are great things. But when we are talking about worship, I mean real worship, we're talking about a heart that is surrendered to Christ. That is worship. Surrendered to Christ. It is a heart that says, Jesus, you are Lord. It is a heart that says, in you, Jesus, and in you alone do I have my hope. This man knew there was nothing he could ever do to gain his sight. He was completely hopeless in that respect. The only way for his eyes to be opened, the only way for him to see, is if God did this for him. It is the same with salvation, isn't it? There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Our salvation can only be accomplished by the grace and power of God. As we have heard many times, as Scripture tells us in Ephesians 2.8, you are saved by grace through faith. 
And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And if we are to boast, let our boast be in the Lord. If you have not believed, let this be the day that you call upon the Lord. Say to Jesus as this man did, Lord, I believe. And if you have believed, let this be a day where we worship in our hearts and say as this man did, I once was blind, but now I see. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are forever grateful that by your grace you gave us eyes to see. We recognize that the truth, we recognize the truth that you are Lord. And God, with our eyes open by your grace, our open eyes also make us sensitive to the depravity of man and the evil that men can do. We pray, Lord, for the people of Ukraine, for its citizens and soldiers, and we pray for believers throughout the world, including the believers in Russia who must be grieving over what their nation is doing to Ukraine. Lord, we pray for believers throughout the world as we proclaim your name, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.